Hey everyone, welcome to another installment of The Way It Is, and I'm your host, Luke Anofaro with Remax Service First Realty here in Kingston. And continuing along our political uh, journey, um, we're fortunate to have with us uh, Ted Shu, who's representing the Liberal Party in this provincial election here for Kingston and the Islands. Um, Ted grew up in Kingston. He knows it well. Uh, it's been his pleasure to serve this area as a member of Parliament uh, from 2011 to 2015. He was the coach chair of the Mayor's Task Force on Housing in 2019 and Executive Director of SWITCH, which was a sustainable energy and green jobs network from 2007 to 2011. He is a former scientist and financial executive uh, who brings an innovative approach to problem solving to take on the challenges faced by our city, region and province. Welcome, Ted. Hey, good, good to be here, Luca. <laughs> so, I guess to get into it, and I, I am a bit of a, I guess I'll fall into the camp of being a bit of a political junkie. I, I do follow it, uh, both federally and provincially. Um, more and more, I am sadly getting disenchanted with, with the process and, and those that participate, and that's certainly nothing against, uh, nothing to, to disparage you at all. Um, the Liberal plan. How how do you feel that will sort of filter down for us here in in Kingston? I guess what what aspects of it will have a real impact here in Kingston? I think I think a lot of the plan will. There's, there's multiple pages on housing, for example, which is the thing that I hear the most about uh, at the door. Uh, the uh, Kingston, of course, is one of the epicenters in Canada of the sharp increase in house prices, but it was already a, a well-recognized problem before the before the pandemic. So we have a, a lot of measures, uh, everything from the overall goal of building 1.5 million homes over 10 years, and that includes a lot of affordable homes, supportive and community homes, uh, homes for Indigenous people, all the way from that to helping uh, cities with the process of um, approval. So this is money for, for example, cities to, to hire more planners to process the applications. Or uh, this maybe doesn't apply so much in Kingston situation, but to digitize the, the process of, uh, of uh, applying for, to do, do all the paperwork uh, to, to mm -hmm. get uh, buildings uh, built and uh, the plans approved. Um, and it goes to uh, money for uh, housing co-ops as an innovative way of uh, producing more housing that is affordable. Um, we're going to try to allow commercial and retail spaces that are not being used uh, to be switched for housing. That's a big trend across uh, North America. For example, in the United States, they had poor regulations and they way overbuilt shopping malls. Yeah. And now uh, yeah. there's all this land that is uh, uh, being converted to, to housing. So that's something that we can, we can do in Canada. It's really interesting, the old Frontenac Mall the old Frontenac yeah. Mall has some has some plans for for housing, and so uh, uh, it's not surprising that that's uh, part of a trend. And one of the things I noticed uh, in the last few years is um, the, uh, and I think everybody knows this, the old Kingston Shopping Center. Yeah. Uh, there's there's land there. It's right by a transit hub. Uh, it's right near schools and churches and stores, yeah. and it's. Uh, that's, I think, uh, a prime uh, place for potential uh, housing developments. 
Yeah, no, and I I know during the pandemic, uh, obviously when everyone was remote working, and and now we're sort of they're in that juxtaposition of who wants to go back, who isn't going to go back, who <laughs> wants to stay remote, and and the hybrids in between, but. Surely to goodness. I mean, Kingston, not so much because we're not developed so so much that way. But there's there's certainly, I think, a lot of office towers around the province that are still sitting uh, half empty or whatever that, that would fit into that sort of um, retrofit model, if you will. So, Yeah, we just have to make it easy to, uh, to make that change. Uh, sometimes zoning changes are needed. Uh, there's questions about... Uh, well, uh, there's just a lot of paperwork sometimes to, oh, to make those changes. Uh, no. And we want the, the Ontario Liberal platform is willing to uh, put some money behind its uh, willingness to help municipalities uh, process applications in a responsible way, but to do it faster so that uh, uh, delays aren't causing people to wait for housing. So and and I was I was very intrigued by because um, I didn't I wasn't aware of this that you were the co-chair of the task force on on housing in 2019. Um, I, I I'm I'm not going to lie I haven't read through the document um, to 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 see what 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 the bones of it are but I, I guess if you can um, maybe give us some of the highlights and then and then follow through with what's been acted on to date and and what still needs to happen with that. Sure, I think um, well one of the highlights locally. Uh, was to get um, all of the, uh, to have a unified set of zoning bylaws uh, updated uh, for the whole of city of Kingston, because uh, Kingston was spending a lot of time uh, processing exceptions uh, mm -hmm. to the zoning bylaws, because people knew the actual practice was different from what the bylaws were because the bylaws were old. And so yeah. a lot of uh, the time of uh, planners was taken uh, processing these exceptions. Now that uh, Kingston is uh, moving towards a, a modernized set of bylaws for the whole city, a lot of um, applications won't need to be filed because they'll be covered by the, by the new bylaws. The practice will coincide with the, with the laws. Uh, and I think that is a good thing that has been acted on. Uh, but there are a lot more things <laughs> that we need to do. One of the main uh, pushes in that, you know, a lot of municipalities, a lot of people who thought about housing in, in cities uh, recognize that we need to push for more middle market housing. This is more modest housing. So it could be smaller housing. It could be housing with less parking. It could be denser housing. But we need to push for middle market housing uh, just because that is where we can provide a lot of uh, affordability in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the private market. So uh, uh, deeply affordable housing needs public support to be built. But 100%. the public sector is just one part of our economy and it actually the capacity to build resides in the private sector. So if we can provide incentives uh, or for the private sector to build more modest housing, the missing middle uh, is a term that uh, people use in, in cities across North America. The middle market housing, more modest housing that's more affordable, uh, that will help uh, relieve the, the housing crisis. And you might think that the middle market housing is different from affordable housing, but actually what happens is that um, people who cannot afford average uh, modest housing, they will go and rent uh, cheaper housing, lower quality housing, and they'll squeeze out people 
at lower incomes. And this squeezing keeps going down the yeah. income scale uh, and the people at the bottom just left with nothing. So yeah. part of the solution is for government to build affordable housing and the Ontario Liberal platform has money to help keep affordable housing affordable and to, to pay for um, affordable housing, to finance affordable housing. But we also have to make sure that that pressure from higher income households is relieved by building more uh, middle market housing. So, um, and I mean, getting to the point of affordability, because obviously that's very top of mind given in the world we live in today and, and operate in, if anybody, of course, uh, I mean, the old cliche, and it's becoming quite cliche, sadly, but going to the grocery store, filling up your tank of gas is certainly um, um, jarring uh, these days in terms of the effect on, on people's pocketbooks. Uh, I know there's a platform there to increase the minimum wage. Um, and, and you know, I watched, um, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a CBC and TVO junkie a bit. And um, there, there was, I, I can't remember the fellow, but um, I think he represented the Chamber of Commerce for the province, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, you know, it's easy to say, let's increase the minimum wage. But, you know, a lot of these businesses coming out of COVID or coming out of the pandemic, uh, they're, they're entrepreneurs, they're, they're self-employed individuals. Um, you can't lay all of that down at their feet. So, I mean, mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the plan to help subsidize that, that way? Because right. I don't disagree with you. I think if everyone yeah. has a wage that they can afford to operate through the world, 100%. Mm -hmm. It helps the economy. Yeah. I, I get all of that. I get the trickle-down effect of that. But yeah. where do you start with that? Yeah, I, you know, that that is a really important question. I've spoken to many businesses and they're having staffing shortages, they're having supply chain disruptions. Uh, and it's something that the government needs to deal with because it's bigger than any particular uh, business. So there are a lot of things that one of the big things in the Ontario Liberal platform is to create a package of benefits for workers that uh, stay with the worker. Uh, if they even if they change jobs or they work independently or they're a gig worker, uh, and that would be something that the the government would finance and relieve the pressure on uh, uh, employers who are not able to hire people because uh, employees are are looking for basic benefits like some sort of pharma pharmacy uh, drug coverage or dental coverage or whatever. So we want to have a package of uh, basic benefits that follows the worker. Uh, there will be incentives for small businesses to contribute to the cost of that package uh, in terms of a, a tax uh, break. Uh, I think employers will want to contribute something because they'll want to compete for employees. We want a situation sure. where businesses are competing for, for employees. Uh, we're also going to do things to uh, increase the availability of labor. And some, there's some very subtle things. For example, Right now on ODSP, first of all, we have to increase ODSP because it hasn't been adjusted for inflation. Um, but we're going to increase ODSP, but we're also going to increase the threshold at which the clawbacks occur. So right now, if you're on ODSP and you, you earn more than $200 a month, you start you, the, the extra amount gets clawed back. So you really don't have an incentive to work a lot. Yeah. Um, we're going to increase that limit from $200 a month, so a monthly cap, to $6,000 annually. So let's say you're on ODSP and, and you have uh, some mental health problems. And sometimes, and I know somebody like this, you know, there are months where you're feeling good and you, you work. And then there's other months where you have trouble getting out of bed because of your mental um, health. 
Well, that kind of person is going to be able to work full time mm-hmm. for the months that they can work uh, because that, that, that um, cap at which uh, the clawback start is going to be applied annually. And it's going to yeah. be much larger, more than twice as large, uh, applied annually instead of monthly. So that's actually going to increase the availability of labor for, for small business. So there's little subtle things like that that can that can help. The other thing we want to do for for businesses is if you were hard hit by the pandemic, we're going to cut your corporate taxes to zero uh, for two years. We want to have we want to pay for before uh, affordable before and after school daycare, and, and that will increase the availability of, of of labor. And let me say one last thing at the risk of going on for too long. I want to contrast the liberal plan uh, to replace minimum wage. Now, and I just want to contrast that with the NDP. The NDP has this plan to increase minimum wage to $20 an hour. The Liberals would like to change that to um, a regional dynamic living wage. So what does that all mean? Well, the idea behind a regional living wage is we're going to look at the cost of living in different parts of the province. And we're going to have something like a minimum wage, but we're going to call it a living wage because it's going to be connected to what is the cost of living in that part of the province. And, you know, I was never able to answer small businesses who said, why, why do I have to pay the same minimum wage in uh, rural Eastern Ontario as in downtown Toronto? It doesn't make sense because um, everything costs less in rural Eastern Ontario compared to downtown Toronto. So we want to have a living wage that is different in different parts of the, the province. So from a business point of view, it means that it will be less expensive to hire uh, people where the cost of living is lower. We also want it to be dynamic. And what that means is, and we're gonna have to sit down with stakeholders like business and, and labor groups and say, um, how can we adjust this living wage automatically with inflation? So that it doesn't become a big political question uh, where you have to wait till the next election to see what your yeah. what your costs yeah. are going to be. Uh, that will provide more certainty for uh, businesses so that you can, you know, certainty is always better. You got business. A lot of business is about you got an idea and you've got to de-risk it. Right. All you got to take away yeah. all the things that go wrong. So if we can remove that uncertainty about the cost of, of labor. Um, that will help a lot. So regional dynamic living wage. And I, you know, one of the things I like about um, the policies that uh, working on policy is, and that, that's why I feel more at home in the Liberal Party, is we can come up with these, okay, it's a little more complicated, a little more detailed, but I think it's also a more thoughtful uh, policy. And um, of course, you know, you always have to sit down with stakeholders to work out the, hammer out all the details. Uh, you should never assume that you've, thought of everything. Uh, But I think this is a better, I think this is a better alternative to what we've been doing so far. Uh, I mean, I, I'm buying in so far on the surface of it. Certainly, by you know, from the from from a high level uh, perspective, no question about it. And and because you're absolutely right, I mean, this is a people always underestimate the massive size of the, the geography of this province and and how many different regions and and how you can go from one end of it to the other and and see the disparity in 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 wages, in employment, in 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 everything uh, for sure. So, um, you touched on ODSP. And and then in part of the platform is also um, 
you know, rent control. And, and I know that's a sensitive subject in Ontario. And mm. I know that got a lot of play during COVID uh, with, you know, so the freezes on, on certain things. And, and I mean, I'm, I, I, I am, a, I was a landlord. I'm a landlord again. I, mm. I am, I do consider myself um, somewhat of an entrepreneur in business for self. Um, and I know, you know, I, I see both sides of it, but I, I guess for me, cause I've seen the abuse and I've seen the systemic breakdown of those systems and so i mm -hmm. guess it's yeah. great to I, I i'm all about empowering people and getting getting them out of their situations but i guess for me you those that are sort of more right right of center would also say well there's just too much abuse there's just too much uh, mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying uh, yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. How, how do well, you how do you get those checks yeah, and balances yeah. to stop so that one of the things uh, in our platform is we want to um clear the uh, backlog at the landlord and tenant board. So we're putting $15 million a year towards that. And I've heard a lot of stories actually from the, the, the toughest one was uh, somebody who was um, recently widowed and, and they have a, a house that they own that, that, that that's their, that's their nest egg and it provides yep. an income and, and the uh, tenants stopped paying rent. Uh, and they haven't got rent for half a year and, and they can't do anything about it because the landlord tenant board is, is, uh, uh, so backlogged and, and that's, yeah. that's not the only, I've heard, I can count, I can almost say, say the names of like three other small oh. landlords yeah. that have the same, have had similar, uh, problems. So, uh, we really need to clear that backlog to be fair to everybody. You know, this. Every case is different. That's why you need a, a board to hear the, the two sides. And in some cases, the landlord might be re more responsible. In some cases, the tenant might be more responsible. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's the backlog has to be cleared so that we can move on and and um, uh, and and try to have a because if things are not fair, people are not going to want to rent out their apartments. They're just going to say, "Well, I'm just going to I'm going to uh, rent it out a few weekends a year in Airbnb. I, I don't want to deal with." Uh, right. Any any problems? If any problems with a tenant comes up, uh, it's never going to be resolved. And so I think it would be better for the whole system if we put some money in and and uh, and got, cleared out the backlog. So that's why there's 15 million dollars uh, a year in the Ontario uh, Liberal platform to help clear out this this backlog. Yeah. Um, I touched on this with uh, with Zachary there from uh, from the Green Party, and uh, and I'll touch on it with you because I know uh, education is a focus. Uh, however, I got and and I, I, I listen. We've got a generation of kids that are in a real risk of of coming out of this thing ill-equipped to to deal with the challenges going forward yeah. of, of yeah. post-secondary And this is education. a worldwide uh, oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, no, I, I get it. Listen, I, I, it's, 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 it's scary to think what the fallout's going to be, and we really won't know for years to come. But my bigger focus, I mean, elementary schools, uh, for sure. I mean, we need teachers. We need more teachers. We need more EAs. We need more specialized care, uh, you know, for those that that, that have disabilities, uh, mental or otherwise, in, in, in the in the you know the public or the elementary school system but post-secondary and you know um especially trades because we're living in a world now where you touched on it there's a, there's a lack of skilled trades there's a there, and that's you know we're in a generation where you, yourself and myself and and, and um uh, you know uh that generation uh, is dying off or, or retiring out of their trades you can't be a bricklayer for 70 years or into your 70s you can't yeah. do drywall into your 70s you can't you know what i'm yeah. saying so yeah yeah where where are the components of that, I guess, in that education money that's being spent? Is there anything attached to that side of it? 
yeah, there's and there's there's money for for skills training and encourage people encouraging people to go into the skilled trades to expand the uh, the the people who think about going into the skilled trades. So you know, in the last and this is and this is not a partisan thing, and in I would say in the last. Uh, uh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been an emphasis on, hey, maybe more women could get into the trades or uh, new immigrants or, or indigenous uh, Canadians could be uh, given the incentive to think about going into the trades. We want to expand the, the, the pool. Uh, and it's out there. There's, there's people who can uh, uh, do it. We just have to change our culture a little bit because I think we undervalued uh, skilled trades, and that's why we have one of the reasons why we have a shortage uh, right now. And and uh, uh, as you said, you talked about retirement age. Uh, you often, if you're doing physical work, you need to retire earlier, and this has to be yeah. a recognition of that. You know, people say, "Oh, 75 is the new 65." Not if you, not if your <laughs> your work is is doing. Uh, uh, is physical and and you know this wear and tear on your back. It's probably the biggest thing that causes yeah. people to to retire early. So um, uh, that's that's absolutely an emphasis, and it's 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 really tied to the biggest thing that I hear at the door, which is housing and the cost of living. If you want to increase, sorry, if you want to fight inflation, without you know in the in the early eighties they fought inflation by ramping up interest rates and causing. Yeah deep recession that's a painful way to deal with inflation but the the ultimately the way to deal with inflation is uh by improving the productivity of of labor and and the more skills people have the more training for the crucial jobs in the economy we have uh the the better we can deal with inflation you know if you if you're missing a crucial worker the whole the whole work group, the whole factory floor shuts down because you don't have the the right person, and um, and even even simple things like I I was ordering flyers for my uh, election campaign, and we had a delay of two or three days, and I was like, all yeah. out of the blue, like, hey, we're not getting our flyers, and yeah. um, and it was a it was the shipping it was like no driver. <laughs> yeah. Like you've got to have the, the people to do the jobs uh, when the jobs need to be done and, and they need to know how to do the jobs, especially, especially the higher skilled jobs. And so labor force development is a really important part of, of productivity and productivity ultimately uh, is, is the ultimate thing that you need to, to fight the inflation. Yeah. I'm gonna if we're gonna change direction a little bit here, um, and 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 um, maybe make you a little uncomfortable, but um, I don't know if you watched the leaders' debate. I, I probably dare say you did. Uh, yeah, um, I did. Yeah, yeah. Watched yeah, the, I did. Most of it, I yeah. did too. Um, I, I I can't say I was uh, well excited about. It. I mean, there had had its moments, I suppose, but. Um, you know, given the polls, given everything else, it seems like um, potentially the fight is now going to become for second uh, between yourselves and, and the NDP. Mm-hmm. Um, given Andrea Horvath's performance, I, I think she sunk the ship. But anyway, that's just my personal opinion. But let's say that Doug Ford gets in again. You're elected here in Kingston. Now you're a lonely island. How do you affect some of these policies? How do you affect change here in your, mm-hmm. in your, in your area for, for, right, for right, Kingstonians, yeah. for your constituents? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've been in that position before. I got elected in 2011. That was the year that Stephen Harper got a conservative majority, but I beat the I beat the conservative candidate here in here in Kingston. Um, it's you know I I think first of all let me say that you know four years ago voters 
voted for the NDP. They chose the NDP to be the official position, uh, opposition. And uh, I think I, I would approach uh, criticizing the, the government in power in a different way. You can't just attack them. It's you know yeah. attacking. It makes good sound bites. It's entertaining. Uh, but politicians have thick skin, and voters are kind of tired of <laughs> parties attacking each other. What you've got to do is you've got to win over some of the some of the middle of the road supporters of of. So I'm going to speak from a partisan point of view. Absolutely. My 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 way of looking at things is you've got to win over some of their voters, some of their uh, middle of the road supporters, and and you don't do that by uh, enter, entertaining attacks <laughs> that get yeah. sound bites in the news. So. One of the things you need to do, I think, is, first of all, you criticize the ministers, but you criticize them legitimately. You don't take cheap, cheap shots. And what I found in my time as MP is that you get a certain respect and you get, you get uh, recognized in the, in the back offices of the, uh, of the other parties when you, when you do that. I, I've even had uh, ministers and ministers' offices phone me to say thank you for not taking that cheap shot, which, you know, you think, well, we think our business is not to help the, <laughs> the conservative yeah. ministers, but the thing is that they they remember when you uh, made an honest criticism and you didn't take a, a cheap shot, and uh, which means that if you need to organize a meeting for somebody in your in your writing, you need you need to make an ask. Uh, they'll they'll listen to you because they remembered that you uh, were careful in what you said and your criticisms were real and. And uh, that's so that's one thing to do. I mean, you've got to when you stand up in question period, you've got to you've got to find those. Uh, um, you've got to do your research and figure out what the, how you can improve on what the government's doing. You've always got to do that. Uh, yeah. And uh, you've got to draw attention to that. But I think that you can do it in a respectful way, in a way that uh, gets attention. And if you aren't on the government side, uh, I think the ministers will know like, oh, we don't want to make Ted <laughs> mad at us. So we better yeah. do something for his constituents because Ted is, uh, is capable of, of criticizing us and, and exposing the mistakes that we made. And the press is going to believe him because he's honest. I mean, I'm, I'm, saying yeah, that this, no, no. I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but this is my strategy. And yeah. I think that's how you can uh, get things done in, in opposition. And at the risk of sounding colloquial, I, uh, I mean, it was evident at the uh, the strategy of of the other parties against uh, Mr. Del Duca. But you know, how do you get the stink of Kathleen Wynne's legacy off off of your off of your uh, you know, <laughs> especially if you're going to be like you said, approaching these middle of the road PC or NDP right. uh, constituents that 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 maybe are on the fence right now or rethinking their um, you know their 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 situation. So. Well, yeah, voters voters sent the liberals into the penalty box for for four years, <laughs> double minor. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I think that was a major, but, uh, actually, to be honest with you. But. Um, but I think Stephen Del Duca has taken the first step by having a completely new, uh, I would say, uh, about ninety percent of the candidates are, are completely new. Uh, and it's a really dynamic uh, group of candidates with uh, with a lot of experience outside of politics. So people who work in healthcare, people who work in education, there's people who uh, work in business and municipal administration. So a lot of really important uh, areas. And he's let these people 
um, contribute to the election platform. So what you see, you know, traditionally, the old way of uh, writing election platforms, you have some people and they work in secret. And the, uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's a reason why you work in secret. It's so that <laughs> nobody knows who to lobby to try to influence the platform. Yeah. Uh, because then you can never get any work done. But you, you because you got to make some, you got to balance some things. You got to make choices. So you want to do that. For sure. Uh, and, but in this, uh, what Stephen Del Duca has done, he's, he's allowed uh, the public, first of all, to have input. And then he's, he's chosen a really diverse, new, energetic group of candidates. And he's allowed them to uh, uh, tweak the platform before it was uh, presented to the, to the public. So I, I think that's, that's, one, uh, that's one thing. And, and uh, ultimately, it takes time to regain uh, uh, the trust of, of people that you, you might have lost. And so we're working at it. And so far, we've rebounded. Uh, we're, I think the Liberals are uh, well ahead of where we were in the, mm-hmm. in the election of 2018. We're consistently ahead of the NDP. This, almost every poll shows us uh, significantly ahead of the N- NDP. So, uh, so we're getting there. But by no means should we, uh, we, you know, we have to learn the lessons uh, from from that uh, last term in government, we need to remember them, um, and we just need to work hard to uh, to earn the trust of voters. Yeah. Um, I won't keep you too much longer, so I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of segue to the last part of this because I know you know all voters uh, of all stripes. Uh, I mean, all these platforms. Uh, it's all about you know the the, the costing of all these plans because they they're they're fantastic and they're they're grandiose and and if they all work to be able to come to fruition, we might very well solve all these problems. But they got to be paid for. So and I know uh, you know even Mr. Del Duca during the debate said it's all been costed, but I I just went on the site. And I didn't see a number for it. So, what's the number, and, and where's the money coming from? Ted? Yeah, yeah. So, so you um, the way to get the full costing document, which is about six pages long. So it's got six pages of lines and lines and lines. Yeah. Um, if you there's a platform page on the Ontario Liberal website, and yeah. on the platform page, if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a detailed version of the platform, and then there's a whole separate uh, document about the costing. And look at the. Okay. Uh, and there's a summary at the end of that document, but the uh, we're looking at um, getting to a um, a balanced budget in 2026. So we know that we need to spend uh, right now to recover from the pandemic. Just as a for example, uh, there's 125 million dollars just for the next two years to help tourism recover. That, that's going to be really important yeah. for for Kingston. Uh, but we're looking at uh, a balanced budget uh, by 2026. Now, having said that, uh, Stephen Del Duca has said, uh, we've got the numbers uh, for that projection, but if people need help, he's going to be flexible. He's not going to um, leave people behind uh, just just for the sake of, of getting to an exact budget yeah. balance in, in 2026. But the numbers are there and you look at, you can look at them and you can see how much money is going for different things for housing, for uh, upgrading our healthcare capacity, for supporting homeless, uh, for investments in there's there's also um, uh, invest loans uh, loan guarantees for small business who want to invest and and grow out of the out of the pandemic. There's there's an accounting for the uh, tax cuts 
uh, to yeah. small businesses that have been hurt by the pandemic and, and everything. Six pages long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, I think we'll end it there because I know we're uh, you are you're on a tight timeline. You've got another debate to do at noon. I wish you all the best. Thank you thank so you. much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll, maybe we'll do a follow up depending what the outcome of the election is then, one way or the other. So uh, all for the sure. best, Ted. I look forward to that. And thanks for reaching out and uh, and. Uh, giving me the chance to, to meet you and, and talk to you on your podcast. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thanks very much. Okay. Bye-bye.